Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Raising Gen Z, your resource for raising confident, thriving teens in today's complicated world. I'm Shira Myro, your host, and I'm a marriage and family psychotherapist and mother of two teen boys. Today, we're going to talk about creating awareness as parents around eating disorders and how it relates to body dysmorphia. The statistics are distressing. Weight obsession affects millions of teens today, especially girls. Studies show that one out of three girls believes they are overweight, and almost 60% say they're trying to lose weight. While we usually associate eating disorders with girls, teenage boys with issues around body image and food are on the rise. Many, many boys and girls strive for the perfect body by dieting or by doing compulsive exercise. Our special guest on the show today is psychotherapist Corey Rosenthal. She specializes in eating disorders and disordered eating, treating codependence, and she's an expert in mindful self-compassion. She has a wealth of knowledge around this subject that we'll be exploring today, and we're so thrilled to have you on the show, Corey. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, Shira. Okay. Well, there's so much to cover. Let's let's see how far we get. To begin, you've been tracking young women and eating disorders for a long time. Tell us how it's different for Gen Z. First of all, Gen Z is a little bit different in terms of the fact that studies show they have a higher rate of anxiety and depression than their predecessors. So from the start, two of the things that put you in a risk factor for an eating disorder are anxiety and depression. Another component that I think is really important is that over the course of my lifetime, and I was born in 1968, I have watched the frenzy over weight grow in intensity to this epic point where literally you can't look anywhere without someone telling you that you're not good enough and you need to fix it. And it's an $11 billion industry now. And that that impacts kids from a very young age, partially because it's been impacting their parents most of their life. So, That's so interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I think about growing up in the in the 70s and 80s, I was born in 71, you're always aware of diets and, and weight watchers and, and that sort of thing. And I wonder, has the dieting culture changed and have their tactics evolved? So it has evolved. One of the things that's become a bad word over the last number of years because we have so much evidence that shows that there isn't a diet on the market that actually works for long-term weight loss and that there are tremendous negative side effects to it. So the diet industry has evolved to change their narrative so that you're hearing lifestyle now instead of diet. It's the same thing. Like they're basically taking the same thing They're altering it a little bit so that it's more trendy, and then they're changing it from calling it a diet to calling it a lifestyle. But it has the same impact on us mentally, emotionally, and physically. So the changes are that it's become, I think, so much more intense, and you can't talk about dieting without talking about social media as well. And so the impact that social media has on kids is massive. Um, yeah, especially especially for tween girls, that, that they're noticing higher rates of suicidality, higher rates of distorted thinking around their bodies. Can you share with us a little bit what you're seeing on social media as, as it relates to tween and teen girls? Uh, these kids follow these accounts of, you know, yoga teachers and celebrities and would-be health experts 
who are telling you how to make yourself more perfect. And they're following them obsessively. They're looking at the image in their phone and the image in the mirror. And no matter what they see, they're not going to see something that measures up. So it's about trying to find more body positive things for them to follow. It's about limiting. I'm sure this is stuff you talk about with your audience, like limiting how much time kids are spending on social media, really paying attention to what they're paying attention to on social media. It's, it's, a, it's a whole extra job that parents have been charged with in, this, in the world we live in today. It's, it's really, really very complicated. Mm-hmm. One of the things I'd, I'd like to maybe clarify for our audience, because I don't think they, they know, I mean, I'm not entirely sure either, which is how, how would you describe the difference between disordered eating and, and eating disorders? Most of us aren't really versed in that. Yeah. Um, well, d- eating disorders are anorexia, bulimia, um, binge eating disorder. There's a few others that they're probably not familiar with, um, RFED and diabulimia. And orthorexia is a really big one um, that I think is important to know. But an eating disorder is a word for a diagnosis. And so in the Diagnostic um, Statistical Manual, which is this very thick book you're familiar with, with all the (laughs) mental health diagnoses that exist out there, in order to have an eating disorder, you meet certain criteria to have that eating disorder. So that's like the biggest difference is that you have all the criteria for anorexia, let's say. But disordered eating, I always think about as the gateway drug. So when somebody has disordered eating, they don't meet all the criteria for an eating disorder. In fact, they may never meet all the criteria for an eating disorder, but their life is structured around their relationship to food or their need to be restrictive with it so that, you know, they don't eat certain food groups they avoid. Um, And I'm not talking about vegan and vegetarianism now. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, Yeah, because a lot of kids start one of their sort of assertions of uh, autonomy by saying, I want to be vegetarian, I want to be a vegan. We see a lot of that. So um, I'm going to put that on to the side for just a moment to give you like some of the signs of disordered eating. Um, So some of them are frequent dieting, chronic weight fluctuation, rigidity around routine and food and exercise, um, feeling guilt and shame associated with eating, preoccupation with food, feeling a loss of control around food, including being compulsive with it, and then using exercise, food restriction, fasting, or purging to make up for bad choices. And that includes intermittent fasting. Um, So I'm saying something very controversial right now, I know. So you're you're basically saying, you know, disordered eating could apply to millions of people is what you're saying. Disordered eating applies to millions of people. Now, well, tell us about orthorexia, because I think that's important. That's also important to throw into the mix. Orthorexia is a obsession with clean eating. Examples of it are people who will only eat organic. So I love Irwan. This is not an attack on Irwan, but I've had clients before who only feel safe eating foods from Irwan because they know they're clean. So it's, that, I, I thought orthorexia was also just a, or obsession with with health and and exercise, but you're saying it's clean eating? So orthorexics can be obsessed with exercise too. Exercise bulimia, where you kind of use exercise to purge. 
um, and you overexercise, but because it's not like you can only have one and then you're immune from the other eating disorder problems. I see. But orthorexia in particular is about healthy eating. And maybe clean eating is the word we see a lot, but really it starts with healthy eating. I just want to eat healthy. So I'm not going to eat. And then you have a list on the right of all the foods you're not going to eat that's 12 pages long and 10 things on the left that you can eat. And and it's an extreme. People won't eat at restaurants. They won't eat at other people's homes. Um, that rigidity becomes so intense. Well, here's a question as, as a parent, right? You're, you're always trying to offer some degree, a modicum, let's say, of some vegetables or some healthy choices for your kids. You know, you don't want them to subsist off chips and pizza right. alone, even though right. in my family that, well, for my kids, they prefer it. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you navigate that, you know, for parents who don't want to superimpose their eating habits or issues rather, because a lot of people have their own stuff around food and create a healthy environment with healthy options for kids, but sort of not pass down that, as you say, the the disordered eating or the orthorexia to their kids. I think that balance is the key. And so here's, here's one of the hard answers is that kids learn by modeling. So if you tell your kids because they're kids, it's okay for them to have X, Y, Z, and then you sit there with steamed broccoli and um, four ounces of chicken breast, you're teaching them the steamed broccoli and four ounces of chicken breast. They might not pick it up right away, but they're learning, well, this is what's good and I'm what I'm doing is what's bad. Not all kids are going to pull that lesson, but the ones who are more um, sensitive will. So maybe add a cookie or a couple potato chips to your broccoli and chicken, like really modeling the ability to eat all foods. Uh, Again, putting the vegetarian and veganism aside, it adds so many challenges for families. I I work with someone right now who um, the parents are not vegetarian or vegan and the daughter is vegan. And so she has to cook all her own food. It adds a challenge because, you know, I'm wanting to make sure she's eating enough and I can't rely on the parents to cook that because she won't eat what they make. So that's a whole separate issue. But yeah, it's balance, like model balance. Show them that it's important to eat all foods. Nutrient dense foods have a place in your body, like the vegetables, as well as the occasional sweet or potato chip or whatever that is, because that make us happy. Sure. And of course, right. You don't, you don't want to, I feel like sometimes the joy of food gets lost in the mix of, of trying to be yeah uber healthy. Can, can we talk a little bit about vegetarian and, and veganism? Because sometimes th- there've been studies where it's conflated with girls in particular, their desire to be thin and have some control over, over what they're eating, but it's also sort of embedded in eating vegetables yeah, and taking a, a stand for animal rights. And so it can get confusing about like what's really the, the driver there, the motivation. It's really hard. And I know eating disorder facilities inpatient were fighting this for a very long time where they would say to an incoming patient who was, let's just say an 85 pound girl who's five foot five, right? So she needs to be refed. She's not healthy. She's in danger. And she's vegan. 
And they would say, you can't be vegan for your health right now. But if it's really not your eating disorder, then you can go back to it. So more and more, they're trying to figure out how to thread that needle and work with them. There are some centers that do. So it's the same thing in your home, right? Like what is an eating disorder versus what is a um, value when it comes to the treatment of animals? And one of the things that I think is really important to throw into the mix is when you have a child who's in a larger body weight, we are now seeing on the regular people who were anorexic and undernourished, but because they were in a larger body weight, they are celebrated for their anorexic behavior, but they were just as sick as their thin girlfriends. Disturbing. It's it's really disturbing. I mean, the, the other piece that we're seeing all over social media is augmentation, body parts, yeah. augmentation, oh. the Kardashians, fillers, you know, and the um, the age at which young people are requesting and getting these operations is getting lower and lower and lower. And I, I find that extremely disturbing. I agree. I think I think it's part of our culture and it's part of our values. And your children are seeing on TV, the Kardashians is an example, although I think they're going off the air. So you're going to see them a little less. They're probably see, <laughs> seeing them more on Instagram. Yes. Um, but they're seeing all of that. And so it really does require like way before they're seeing it, a lot of conversation about what beauty is and body and loving and respecting the body you're in. And if nothing else, finding body neutrality, you know, once someone has a difficult relationship with their body, which frankly is most women, body neutrality is a goal. Like maybe you're not going to love the skin you're in, but you cannot hate it. And then it starts, unfortunately for girls, it starts with mom. So, you know, the way that we talk about our own bodies, they're little sponges. They pick up on all of it. So what might you suggest for, for parents, mothers, because, you know, it's a different, I think it's a slight, slightly different. I want to talk about boys in a second, but let's say, how can mothers either invite the conversation or what kinds of things can they, can they say or share that, that might help their teen or tween rather, who's comparing and despairing that they don't look anything like the Kardashians? What might be some frames that, that could be helpful? Well, A, I, I might say me neither. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> me neither. And I might validate that it's really hard to see these images as held up to what is what we're supposed to look like and then fail to meet them. Like it's not possible, you know, Um I mean, I mean, it's more know, uh, more unrealistic than ever now, right? It's, it's more it's more so altered. Yeah. yeah. So you know, being able to say to your teen, "I never hit five two. So literally saying, you know, no matter how much I thought I was going to be five four, and I believed it because I did. I told people that I was going to be five four. I, like I never hit five two. And so you know, this is my plot in life. And there are other things like let's focus on something else. Let's focus on what you do do well. Let's let's really put from as early an age as you can. So by the time they're teens, you've missed some of the boat, but you can start now focusing on everything about them that is amazing and wonderful and has nothing to do with the image in the mirror. As little time as you can spend complimenting what the appearance is, other than like um, if someone has a great sense of style, 
that's something to compliment. Like, I really admire your sense of style. Can you help me put an outfit together? Like the amount of self-esteem that's going to give a kiddo, right? Um, Or like, you're really good at knowing what looks good. Can you help me decorate the house for the holidays or find a new something for the house? Like, and the same thing, by the way, with food, um, and this goes for the vegans and the vegetarians, like, I want to support your diet. So, uh, or I want to support your eating plan. And while I'm not going to be vegan, why don't you and I start coming up with some recipes and we'll choose a couple nights a week that you'll cook them for the family. Oh, that's great. I love that. Like, teenagers, especially boys and girls should be learning how to cook. Um, <laughs> you had me at teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, absolutely. You know, it can be right. It can be bonding to to support. I, I remember when when my uh, when my son Eli he was six, he took a stand. He wanted to be a vegetarian. I think he was a vegetarian mm-hmm. for three years. I was with him for that first year and a half. It was very hard for me, just yeah. because. But I wanted to support him, and you know, I had ate a lot of lentils, <laughs> a lot <laughs> of lentils. But uh, two questions. One is. Can you define body dysmorphia? And is is there some sort of sub subclinical category about this obsession with appearance? Because teens naturally sort of obsess over their appearance, but when does it cross the line into uh, maybe we're overusing the word body dysmorphia? Can can you clarify? Um, sure. I think one of the biggest problems is we're actually misusing the word body dysmorphia. So body dysmorphia is kind of about an obsession about some part of the body that they're perceiving as being wrong, but it is not about weight and body shape. So someone with body dysmorphia might look at their nose and think that it is massive. And you look at their nose and it's like, it's not that big. That's like, you know, that's, it's, it's normal. It looks like mine or whatever, but what they're seeing is this huge problem with some part of their body. So body dysmorphia exists, but it is not the same thing as I'm freaking out because I don't have a thigh gap for girls because that's such a huge, disgusting thing. Um, I mean, if you have one, it's not disgusting if it's genetic and it's the way you're built. But the idea that everyone is supposed to be built that way is unrealistic and not real and causes a lot of pain. And then you know, for boys, it's like kind of your son, like everyone, or like, I think you were talking about your kids or other kids who are not built to be those big bodybuilder guys and feel like they're supposed to. So they're, when it's weight and shape, you're talking more about an eating disorder. Okay. So if your kid, you said earlier, try to name for them, right? What their strengths are, what they're good at, they've got great style, those, those kinds of things. But if they're still coming back to you or saying, you know, I hate my skin or I hate my nose, or I, you know, look fat in these jeans, what might you say to them that could be encouraging and and promoting of acceptance, self-acceptance? I might educate them about how, um, how they're not alone in the way that they feel that the reason why the diet industry is an $11 billion industry, let that number sink in. (laughs) The reason why is because everyone feels uncomfortable about their body, that we get flooded, like normalize how they're feeling. 
if you start to see that they are shying away from activities, and that can be, uh, I had worked with someone who, when their family went on vacation, I think they were at the in the Caribbean, and the daughter wouldn't take off her giant t-shirt because she didn't want anyone to see her in her bikini. And she was very thin, but she was so afraid that people would see how fat she was. And I think that's what people think when they think of body dysmorphia, that's where the, it's really an eating disorder. I see. Okay. <clears throat> but when you're, when you're noticing that your child is altering their life to avoid situations where that part of their body is going to show or where they're going to be seen, you want to get help for your kiddo because you, okay. you don't want them to start shrinking their life. But prior to that, you know, you want to be constantly normalizing how they feel, um, letting them know that as much as they feel like it's the worst, like I always think it's so interesting to give people a window into everyone else's mind because in ours, we feel so isolated and it's like, oh my God, I look so fat. And you don't realize that everyone on the line sitting across from you in a school gym is thinking the exact same thing in their head. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, having some of those conversations and, and again, like not necessarily in the same conversation because it's too obvious, but continuously building up the other parts of who they are authentically. I so appreciate that, Corey, you know, as, as you're speaking, as you know, I I work with couples and, and relationships and I've had many, many women in particular in my clinical practice, you know, young women, older women who, who still sort of take that idea of physical perfection, but also perfection across their life, thinking that they will not be worthy of love. They will not, they will not be sexually attractive enough, but then that because they don't conform to that ideal of thinness or beauty or perfection or youth, that's another piece of that. That's for a separate yeah. conversation, but they make that a requirement to be ready quote unquote, for love. And it's a huge misconception. It's a myth. And I think it has its origins in these early adolescent years where they start a narrative that if I don't look this way, no one's going to find me attractive. No one's going to find me acceptable. I don't find myself attractive. I don't find myself acceptable. And what happens, it's so pernicious, right? This narrative gets embedded deeply within their psyches and it it's, starts to play itself out. And, and then they come into therapy years later, we have to dig it out so that right. they, because they write, their, they write themselves out of relationships, both sexual and romantic relationships, because th- there's, there's a connection with this ideal of beauty and perfection or sexual attractiveness that threads itself um, throughout. And so I also think for that reason alone, it's, it's really important to, at some point to, to make the connection so that they're, they're not carrying that around because it's so, well, it's, it's really sad is what it is. It is like carrying around a 50 pound backpack your whole life that is filled with rocks. It's just, and I have to say from a psychological risk, risk factor for an eating disorder, perfectionism is like number one. Perfectionism to me is one of the most, it's also from, um, you know, working with codependents of which there can be a lot of crossover. Perfectionism is just a killer. I mean, it really is. And it's like you were alluding to, it's so hard to dig out. It's so hard to change. It's so hard to let go of that inner perfectionist. 
I also think because, you know, we're talking to a group of parents here, there was a time when the eating disorder world put a lot of blame on eating disorders on the family, on the parents, on the mother. And that's just not true. There are a lot of things that can potentially kick off an eating disorder. And while the way, you know, parents talk about their own bodies and food is a contributing factor, it is not the cause. Oh, that's interesting. So, so the treatment, because I, I knew for a long time, right, they, they bring in the families uh, to, they to help. Do. They, they still, still do. Because it's, it's eating disorders are, I mean, they usually come to life um, in adolescence and sometimes earlier. I mean, you know, I've talked to people who will say, you know, yeah, my eating disorder started when I was six, seven, eight, nine you know, and that's so young and you're not even thinking about it. You're just thinking your kiddo is a picky eater. You're not realizing that they're pulling their stomach skin and thinking it's fat. And so, you know, but we, our culture puts such a fear of fat into our, uh, our kids, you know, that whole obesity scare. I, I want to leave our, our listeners with uh, something that uh, we had talked about a while ago and I loved it so much that something I think you had written about, which is when, when people, let's say your, your teen or tween says, you know, mom, I feel fat. How would you counter that in this period? Yeah. I, I think that I feel fat becomes this simplified term for a host of other feelings and insecurities. So I would ask them how else they feel. Okay. You feel fat, but what, what does that mean? How else are you feeling? And then you might need to name some possibilities, although I'd hate to give them ideas, but like, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, like, does that mean that you feel, um, are, are you feeling insecure? Are you feeling like people don't like you? Are you afraid they won't like you? Are you feeling lonely? Like I feel fat, fat isn't a feeling. Great. But it can be a header for a host of other feelings. And so I would get to what those are because right. we can't that, do anything. Because at the end, a catch all, right? I feel fat can mean I feel unhappy, disappointed, frustrated, all of those things. Um, and they're buying the same bill of goods that we all are, which is why there's an $11 billion industry for weight loss, which is if I have the perfect body then all the things that are missing in my life will appear. And that has never been true. It's a lie. Thank you, Corey. I think it's so important to make that explicit because that's the underlying story, right? Once I'm in that perfect body, everything will be available to me. And what people come to find out is it's not necessarily true at all. yeah. The things you want, like, you know, the, the intangibles, yes, you'll wear a smaller clothing size, but the intangibles of like, people will like me more. That's not necessarily true. Especially if the way that you get there is through obsessiveness so that you really are shutting yourself off to other people because you're, you know, so focused on every morsel of food and minute of exercise. So true. Oh my gosh, Corey, I, we could talk for hours. <laughs> I know. Um, this, the time went by so fast. Okay. So if, um, if listeners are interested, w- where can they find you? What's, uh, what's your website? It is, um, Corey Rosenthal.com. So C O R I R O S E N T H A L.com. 
Great. And of course you're on Instagram. Yep. It's Corey underscore LMFT. You'll see some anti-diet messages there for sure. Well, hopefully we can have you back on the show uh, for part two. This, this was really wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. This was lovely. Thank you. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for being with us. You can join us every other week as we'll continue to unpack the most pressing issues around parenting teens. You can find us on Spotify, Anchor, and Radio Public. You can also follow us on at Raising Gen Z on Instagram. And as always, we want to hear from you. Please send us your questions or our stories. You can email us at raisinggenz3 at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.